All right. Well, uh, today we're going to be in week three of a prayer series. Uh, we paused our study in Romans, and we really felt like the Lord was moving us into this time of prayer, this intentional focus on prayer. And in that, we wanted to teach on prayer. And we set up two weeks to look at how Jesus prayed and where he prayed and, and to even talk about what Jesus prayed. And we went through the Lord's Prayer last week. And this week was kind of open. I didn't know if I was going to be going back into Romans or if there was something else that needed to be preached on. It was just sort of this week that was sitting there. And we really felt as the time went on that there was a reason that this week was still open. Uh, and we, we felt like we needed to take some time to talk about unanswered prayer. Sort of like the elephant in the room of prayer. What happens when we pray and it seems like God's not doing anything about our prayers? Now, uh, our community group got into a little discussion this week, and uh, there's a, a little bit of an argument that there's no such thing as unanswered prayer, that God always answers either yes or no or later, and those are things that, that people can look at that, and you can say, okay, Matt, actually, I, I don't believe in unanswered prayer, and I hear you, and for the sake of our message, I want you to hear the way that I'll be talking about unanswered prayer is not that God simply does nothing, but that from our perspective, there are things like unanswered prayer. From what we can see and experience, we might go through something like a phrase, unanswered prayer. And so we want to talk about how do we as people continue to live by faith when it feels like God is not responding. I want to get us to a place where we may have battled in prayer for something and nothing changed, and then we started to lose our faith in the whole concept of prayer, or we start to change our theology that maybe God couldn't do something about that, or maybe that God didn't like me enough to do something about what I was praying for. And so I want to talk through unanswered prayer. That's what we're going to be in. To start, three scriptures uh, that represent stories in the Bible of unanswered prayer from the perspectives of the people that are writing. Uh, the first one is David. This is an interesting situation. Uh, so David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he actually impregnated her, and she had their child out of wedlock. He had had her husband uh, killed on the front lines of battle, so he was guilty of adultery and murder, and it was a, it's a very broken situation in the life of David. And after his son is born, his son gets sick, and David goes to prayer. And it says this in 2 Samuel 12, 16 through 18. It says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. That's how the text goes. There's no happy ending. The, the child comes back to life. There's no change in the circumstances. The story as it goes just tells us that David prayed and fasted for God to change the circumstance. And all we're told is that the child died. And that's one of those difficult moments that we'll have to process through and take a look at. The second one comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. This is Paul writing, and he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
This is a situation where three times Paul prayed for something to change. We actually don't know what the thorn in his flesh specifically was, but it was something that he believed hindered him from doing the ministry that God had asked him to do. And he goes and prays, Lord, would you take this from me three different times? And then Jesus responded and said very kindly, no. Then we have Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 44. And this is Jesus, and this is where we'll be spending the bulk of our time today. It says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. As you can see from these, there are prayers that go up, but outcomes are not changed. That's what happened with David. He prayed, he fasted, and nothing changed. There are prayers that go up, and there's an alternate answer that's provided, and that's what happened with Jesus. He prays, and he agonizes, but there's an angel that's sent to him to minister to him. So God's response to Jesus was to strengthen him to keep walking in the path that he had for him. He doesn't change anything. He doesn't give an answer except to send an angel to strengthen Jesus. And then there's prayers that go up, and again, we get a very grace-filled, no, that's not what I have for you. And again, you might argue that that's an answer to prayer, and it is. But the reality of the experience is that oftentimes when we're praying, we're asking for a very specific thing to change, And when that thing doesn't change from our perspective, we can feel the weight of what that means for us. In fact, a lot of times we respond emotionally to this. We can can grow angry. We can get frustrated. Sometimes we even slip into bitterness where we start to uh, feel hardened towards God. It can affect us in ways like our faith where we don't know if I'm going to go back in prayer. I tried that. I've been in some form of ministry for 23, 24 years, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people, I tried that. Yeah, I I gave that a shot, and it didn't work. And we find ourselves in these places where we actually grow hard in our faith towards God, and we're not willing to go back to him, because what if he says no again? Sometimes we respond theologically, where we start to question, well, can God really change anything? Or does God actually love me? Would he do this even if he could? And we start to ask questions that would alter what we believe, what we hold to be true, what the Bible even teaches us about God. Because our experience has affected us so profoundly, we start to think a little bit differently about God. So what I want to do today is I'm going to talk through what are some ways that we can respond to unanswered prayers that keep us moving towards Jesus, that actually help us grow as people of faith? And while we may never get the, the full why, it, it might help us wrap our heads around what God is doing in the midst of unanswered prayer. Last week, I shared with you uh, from a, or about a book by a guy named Pete Grieg. It's called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. Pete did something very helpful where he also wrote a kid's version called How to Pray, a guide for young explorers, and it's teaching kids how to pray. I spent some time reading through that this week, and I found it to be very helpful. See, the thing is, when there's something emotional like unanswered prayers, sometimes we don't need a lot of words to tell us about what's going on. We just need somebody to speak to us, maybe even like we're kids, and help us just know what God says to us. And Pete does that really well in this book. He says this. He says, the Bible is honest about unanswered prayer. 
It tells us that our prayers won't always be answered, but God still cares for us even when we can't understand what's going on. There's something about knowing God's posture towards you even in unanswered prayer that will help. While Pete gives six uh, things that we can do to to learn about unanswered prayer and learn how to process through unanswered prayer. And we're going to walk through those six things. They're all from the Garden of Gethsemane, from Jesus' prayer. And so we're going to take some time to learn how do we respond uh, when the things that we're praying for are going unanswered. So the first one, number one, is talk with your friends. Talk with your friends about the things that you're going for and the things that you're praying through. So it's not insignificant that when Jesus was going to face the biggest thing that he had to deal with in this human life, going to the cross, that he actually took his friends with him. So a little bit of the scene, Jesus had done the Last Supper, you might have seen the painting, Jesus had done the Last Supper or the First Communion, he sits with his disciples and they break bread and they take a Passover meal together, he does the whole communion thing and then when they're done, they get up. And they leave this upper room in Jerusalem and they walk down through the Kidron Valley and across to the Garden of Gethsemane where they could stand in this garden and they could see Jerusalem. They could see the temple. And they go to this garden and and then Luke tells us that he went about a stone's throw away and he knelt down and he prayed. Now, I don't know if this is like a Clayton Kershaw stone's throw or if this is just like a little toss with my injured shoulder, but the point of what Luke's saying is that Jesus didn't go very far from his disciples. He brought them with him into the story. He could have left them in the upper room and said, guys, I need some time alone, but that's actually not the story. He said, come with me. He brings his disciples into this place and he asks them to to pray and he goes a little further to be on his own. Odds are, at that stone's throw, they could have seen him, heard him, witnessed his agonizing prayer. They were with him in that. Now, here's the thing about friends. As our friends, they don't always carry things the same way that we do. Sometimes they give us really bad advice. You see that in the book of Job. If your friends come to you as you're praying through things and God's not responding and they say, curse God and die, that's bad advice. That's what we get from the book of Job. Okay, sometimes our friends don't give us the best advice. Sometimes they don't carry things as heavily as we do. They don't labor in prayer the same way that we do. And sometimes they're not able to help tangibly. They come to you and they're like, ah, I just don't know what there is to do. But that doesn't mean that our, our friends aren't valuable in prayer. There's something to inviting them into the story that we link arms with these people that we love, these brothers and sisters in Christ, and we contend for the things that are heavy on our hearts. And there's something to knowing that you are being prayed for, that people are joining with you in that, that strengthens you and ministers to you and encourages you in the midst of difficult prayer. Sometimes our tendency is to be very private and to keep it to ourselves. The Bible teaches us a different way, and that's to bring people into the story. Paul shows us this in Ephesians 6. Now, in the context of Ephesians 6, Paul's writing about the armor of God. He's talking about spiritual warfare. He's helping this church know that they need to be contending for all things. And he tells them about the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God, praying at all times. And then he says this, To that end, verse 18, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
Paul says, guys, pray for me. I need you praying for me. Now, this isn't some random church. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And then on his second trip, he calls for the elders from Ephesus to meet him on the beach at Miletus in Acts chapter 20. And they kneel down in the sand and they labor together in prayer. These are people that Paul has prayed with and he loves them and he knows them. And then he's talking to them in prison. He writes to them and says, pray for me that I would be bold to preach the gospel even while I'm in chains. Paul's bringing his friends into the story and asking them to pray with him. So the first one is talk with your friends. The second one is keep praying. It can be very tempting when we don't hear answers or we don't hear the answers that we want to quickly move on. We'll often run away from prayer. We, we kind of do this thing. It actually kind of uh, comes from Catholicism and has made its way into sports. It's called a Hail Mary Right? The idea of a Hail Mary is like, well, in sports, it's like throwing the ball and seeing if somebody might catch it. And that's sometimes our posture in prayer is I'm just going to toss this thing up and see if anything happens. Hopefully there's a good outcome from this prayer. And our posture can kind of be like a one and done with prayer. That's not the example that Jesus has set for us. Again, back to Luke chapter 22. Jesus prays and says, Father, if you're willing, this is verse 42, Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So here's what happens with Jesus. He prays, Lord, if there's any other way, would you remove this cup from me? And God's response, the Father's response, is to send an angel to strengthen him for the task ahead and Jesus' response to God strengthening him is to go back and pray more earnestly, agonizing. Lord, if there is any other way, would you remove this cup from me? Jesus dives back into prayer after God gives him a response. See, this idea of praying is not something that we just throw something out and see if it happens, see if there's an answer, see if there's a way forward. In fact, one of the problems that many of us run into is that we don't see answers to prayer because we give up long before the solution is ever going to present itself. I had a mentor, a youth pastor named Chuck Gerwig. And when I was in high school, Chuck would tell us that he was praying for his best friend, uh, Mike, who wasn't a believer. And they were motorcycle buddies and they would ride all over the country together and they uh, had great times playing music together. They loved each other, but Mike was not a believer. And Chuck prayed for Mike for 18 years. Now, this is a story of answered prayer, but it's a story of diligence, of keeping on praying. Chuck prayed for Mike on a regular basis for 18 years. Now, Chuck moved on from the Canaille Valley, moved up to Santa Cruz, eventually started Elevation Church, and they met in a bar up in Santa Cruz, and Chuck was preaching one night uh, in this bar in Santa Cruz, and he sees Mike walk in the back door, and he keeps preaching, and then as soon as he's done, he runs back. He hadn't seen Mike in a couple years. He runs back to see Mike, gives him a big hug, and Mike says, Chuck, I found Jesus. I gave my life to the Lord. Now, I share this story because we've sort of lost the gift of long-suffering. As a culture, we tend to think about things quickly, and then when they don't resolve, we move on to the next thing. We're fast our culture is quick, and we jump from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. 
And many of us have lost this picture of long praying, laboring with the Lord weeks, months, years. What Jesus invites us into when he says, ask, seek, knock, is a life of ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. There is a call to persistence in prayer. Now, you might think, why would God do that? And that's so often the place that we go is, why wouldn't he just give me what I want when I want it? And for those of us that have stepped into parenting, we've learned just a little bit about why you don't give people exactly what they want exactly the moment they want it. And while that's just a glimpse, that's not the total answer, that's just a glimpse of how God may deal with us and interact with us in prayer, it's helpful to understand that God sees things differently than we do. That God responds to us in his time, in his way, and part of us going to him is the discipline of learning to depend on God. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25 and 26 says this, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Paul sets a similar example when three times he pleaded with the Lord about removing this from him. This idea of unanswered prayer is an invitation from the Lord to keep going, to keep on praying. The third thing is hold on to God's love. Hold on to God's love. One of the things that can tend to happen when we experience unanswered prayer is we start to rewrite the narrative a little bit about how God feels about us because he's not responding to our prayers the way that we want. As Jesus goes into this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, a couple of things happen. In Luke's account, it just says, Father. But in Mark's account of this same passage, Mark chapter 14, verse 36, it tells us, that he cries out, Abba, Father, if you are willing. See, the call of Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane is to go to that language of dad, father. And in seeing that written out, we learn that Jesus was acknowledging that he is a son loved by a father as he enters into prayer. Even as he goes to this thing that is weighing so heavy on him, there's a sense of being loved by God. And if Jesus simply saying the word Abba doesn't show you that that's real, I want, to, I want you to see John chapter 17. This is one of the great prayers of Jesus' ministry. And it happens as they're going towards the Garden of Gethsemane. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And this has happened after the foot washing. This has happened after the meal, the Last Supper. Jesus prays this prayer. And in John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus prays this. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And in verse 26, I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus, as he was going into prayer, had a firm grasp on the reality that God loved him. He knew it. Now, this is so important for us as we go into prayer, especially as we start to go into prayer 
in long-suffering form where we're praying for the same thing for weeks and months and years. The questions start to come and oftentimes Satan will attack us in these moments and declare, does he really love you? Does God really have your best interest? If he's not giving you these things, is he really for you? And we can start to question God's love for us. Uh, a few years back, about 10 years ago, uh, there's a, a call to prayer. Um, I, I can't really call him a friend, but a, a colleague in ministry, a man named Britt Merrick and his wife, Kate, they had their daughter, Daisy. Uh, and Daisy, they found in Daisy, I think she was maybe six years old at the time, a tumor the size of a Nerf football. And they found this, and uh, like they, they started praying. And I'll be honest, I, I mean, we had just started Anthem Church a few years before, and it was new in Twitter world, and Pray for Daisy became a trending topic that trended globally. It was the number one trending topic for about two weeks, Pray for Daisy. There was a website, prayfordaisy.com. Kate, uh, Britt's wife, started blogging through the entire experience. Everywhere they went for treatment, every prayer, every ministry, everybody that was praying over it, she was blogging all the way through. You can actually go and read prayfordaisy.com still and read this tragic journey of them praying for Daisy who did die. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed globally. People were praying. I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm like peripheral to the story. I barely know the Merricks. And I felt the weight of, um, Lord, what happened when Daisy died? I struggled. And that was one of the great examples to me of unanswered prayer. And I went back and I spent some time on Kate's blog this week just reading through her journey and after Daisy died, the first post that she wrote uh, after Daisy died, she shares Psalm 16, 8 through 11 in the New Living Translation. And I got to tell you guys, watching a mom who's just lost her daughter to cancer write these words wrecked me. She said, I know that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forevermore. Guys, as we approach a life of faith-filled prayer, we are going to run into moments where those prayers are not answered the way that we would want, and there's going to be a temptation to question God's love. And in those moments, truth has to win. The reality that you are loved by God, that he is for you, that what he wrote in Romans 8.28 is true, that he is working all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that God brings good even out of a broken, wicked, fallen, evil world. God is redeeming and restoring and creating his ultimate purpose out of difficult things. And when our prayers go unanswered, we're not to go to the question of does God actually love me? We're to rest in the reality that we are children of a loving God who calls us his own. Number four, know that God is powerful. 
Know that God is powerful. This is about our doctrine, what we believe about God. This might be one of the more painful realities of unanswered prayer. In Mark's account of Jesus praying in the garden, he says this, Abba, Father, Mark 14, 36, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. All things are possible for you. The first thing that Jesus does is he actually acknowledges, God, you are able to change these circumstances. You are able to alter outcomes. You're powerful enough to do this. And this is one of the great pain points of prayer. And maybe one of the things that sends us running into hiding is if God is powerful enough to fill in the blank, yet he hasn't changed it, I can't understand why. I can't wrap my head or my heart around why God wouldn't do this thing. And in saying that you are able to do this, all things are possible for you. We are confessing something that is absolutely true. That God could change an outcome. And then we have to sit with what it means when he does it. We have to rest in what it means when he does it. And what does it mean? This is a passage that I shared from Isaiah 55 last week. This is God speaking to Israel in captivity, and he says, or who are about to go in captivity. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, one of the things is when our prayers go unanswered and, and we know that God is able it can be tempting for us to start to rewrite what God can do. Well, maybe he couldn't change this. Maybe it would make more sense if God wasn't able to change this outcome. We run away from a belief that is true, that God is all-powerful. All things are possible for you. And where we then need to land is in the trust that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. See, when Paul prayed and said, would you remove this cup from me? Jesus actually gave him an answer. He said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So when Paul prayed and said, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? Jesus didn't say, give me a minute, I'm trying. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. He was able to remove the thorn, but he chose not to because he had something for Paul to walk in, a story for him to, to experience. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here was Paul's response to Jesus saying that to him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul writes, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Lord, if you're in weakness, then that's where I want to be. I don't want the outcome to be changed for my sake. I want to be where you shine the most. I don't know where you are in your prayer life or your faith journey of growing, and maybe you're not there yet to be able to say, if it's weakness, if that's what you have for me, then that's what I want. But that is where God is taking us as we grow in maturity. 
Uh, a friend of many of ours, a man named John Franklin, recently wrote a book. Um, John is, uh, he was here with us. He was a part of the, the beginning of Anthem Church. A little bit about John's life. He just posted on Facebook this last week. It's been 36 years last week since uh, he fell paralyzed. Uh, John was a, a healthy middle-aged man, had three kids, lived in Newbury Park, worked for Prudential Insurance. Uh, he was out on the softball field playing church softball, uh, started to feel a pinch in his neck, uh, went to the dugout, sat down, started losing feeling in his feet, and it started working its way up uh, through his legs. He tried to stand up, and uh, everybody saw that he was woozy. They helped him to the car. He went to the hospital. Uh, John never walked again, still to this day. John lives in Atlanta. Uh, and he's in a wheelchair. He's paraplegic. Now, I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm one of, so John's son, Dan, is one of my best friends. I grew up in that generation. So he was like my parents' generation, my parents' friend. And so as a kid, you don't really think much about it. I saw him fall. I actually remember the softball game. I watched him come into uh, Anthem, Evangelical Free Church, in a wheelchair, and I saw their life change. They had to add ramps to their house. They had to get mobility vans. They had to do everything different. Everything changed for them. Here's the thing. From my perspective, being that much younger, I was in dozens of prayer meetings where John was anointed with oil. We prayed for healing. We asked for the Lord to give him his legs back, to give him his strength back. We prayed. We prayed. People prayed. And those are the meetings I was in. And I was a kid. There were hundreds of prayer meetings for John to walk again. Thousands of people have prayed for 36 years that John would get his strength back and he would be able to walk again. Well, this, is, this is John's perspective and I just want to share this with you and it's hard to even wrap my head around. He says this. He says, we talked about the wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through eight, or 7 through 18. It says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. John writes this, those were words of truth and comfort to me. They were like a drink of cold, pure water during a trek through the desert. This is a man that to this day has spent 36 years in a wheelchair and he writes and says that this is a momentary light affliction. That he's a, uh, an earthen vessel, but he carries the treasure of the presence of God. I share this story because he is living, breathing evidence of unanswered prayer who fully believes that God is able to heal him, but has made his power perfect in John's weakness. as it changes us to pray for things and to hold on to our doctrine. It changes us to know that God is able, but to trust him in his response. It actually makes us different people, mature people in our faith. We grow in ways that we never thought possible when God walks with us through these things that from our perspective 
our unanswered prayer. Number five, be honest. In the garden, Jesus did not pray the words that he knew he was supposed to pray. He asked for what made the most sense to him. So this was Jesus' prayer. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. The whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to die on that cross and be raised from the dead. He was sent by God. We read this in Philippians chapter 2, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, meaning the Father had asked him to go and die, even to die on a cross. That was the call on Jesus' incarnation was to go and die, and Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As the Father has sent me, Jesus was sent into the world to die. And he lives his 33 years and he gets to the night before he's supposed to go to the cross and his prayer is, Lord, can we, uh, can we opt out of this? Father, if there's any other way, would you remove this cup from me? Can we not do what is about to happen? Now he does pray Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But in this moment, I want you to hear, Jesus prays a very real prayer. Now, something can tend to happen in us when we pray, and a lot of this comes from maybe just our upbringing or the cultures or that type of thing, but we tend to pray in very neat and tidy and theologically accurate ways. We try and check a lot of boxes and make sure that we go through and that our our prayers are perfectly aligned with all of the scriptures every step of the way. And you're like, are you saying that as a bad thing? A lot of times what it does is it leads us to a place where we're not actually praying the desires of our heart. We're praying something else altogether. When Jesus prayed, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, he was not praying in alignment with the scriptures. Jesus was in a moment of desperation in the garden. It says he was agonizing to the point of sweating blood. He was honest with the Father. Why is this important? The Father already knows the very depths of your heart. He knows your desires. He knows what you need before you even ask, Matthew chapter 6 says. He knows those things, and he invites you to be real in this life with him. Cast all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. When the Pharisees were doing the things that they were supposed to do, but not doing the things that engaged the Father, he called them whitewashed tombs. This is not what I had for you. The invitation is to come to Jesus in a real way and to be honest with him in prayer. And Jesus sets that as an example, that we walk in honesty. This is a big part of why we created the prayer room. It's not the main reason that we created it, but we wanted to create a safe space where you could go and pray and be honest with God. I don't know if it's because so often we pray around other people and they hear what we're praying and we're worried about the the judgment of other people when we're praying. Am I saying the right words? Am I saying them in the right order? Is this how this is supposed to go? And we start to get into this place of praying something that is not even what we actually want. And Jesus is teaching us to come to him in the rawness of a place that a human being needs to go, and that's to be open and honest with the Father. 
ask for what you want. Ask it. Cast all your cares. What are the things that you are caring about, the things that you're, you're holding on to, things that you're longing for? Lay them on him. He cares for you. All your anxieties, what are the things that are causing you strain, that are making you worried, that are making your brain work double and triple and quadruple overtime, and you can't function with those things on your mind. God wants you to lay them on him because he cares for you. He wants honesty because he loves you, and that's what love is, is to allow him into those spaces and be real with him in prayer. You come before the Lord. You lay out what you want. Ask him for what you want. And we've already talked about, this is a message on unanswered prayer. There are times that God doesn't respond to the very things that we want in the times that we want. And so you might be saying, why would I even pray for what I want if he's not going to give me that thing? Part of being honest is allowing us to get to the place where God can shape us through prayer. See, if we're not honest, if we're praying these neat and tidy prayers, but there's these real desires that are going unspoken, we're sort of dividing ourselves and making a, a weird separation of here's the things that I'll say to God, but here's the things I really feel. And we're, we're putting God in a very strange place. God's like, come on. If this is going to happen, bring it to me. When we get honest and vulnerable before God, that is a place that he works and he builds us up. We see this. James and Peter write the exact same phrase that make us think that this was probably something that God said often. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's a humility to coming before God and laying ourselves bare before him. It's the belief he already knows these things, and so I'm going to verbalize them. I'm going to articulate them. I'm going to lay them out before him. Be honest in prayer. And number six is to give up control. Jesus ends his prayer with, not my will, but yours be done. And the key to a deep, honest, faith-filled prayer life is to relinquish control to God whose ways are higher than your ways. Now, I'm not sure if your brain goes to this place of like, how am I supposed to both be honest and yield control or give up control to God? How are both of those things true? And I think that's a, a tension that Jesus invites us to live in when he says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, fully honest and nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, yielding completely to the will of the Father. There's a great moment where uh, the angel approaches Mary about bearing Jesus. And she says this in Luke 138. She says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. See, giving up control is not simply just saying, Fine, God, have it your way. Being frustrated and, and just whatever. The process of saying, Not my will, but yours be done. It's the discipline of giving control to God and saying, I trust you. This is what I want. And at the same time, 
I trust you. And I want to be a part of what you're going to do here. Not my will, but yours be done. I'll give you my will. Jesus shared his will honestly and completely, and then he yields his will and says, not my will, but yours be done. This is something that we do to bring ourselves completely to God, and we learn to trust him. When we cast our cares and anxieties on him, we learn to trust that he is better with those than we are. Not my will, but yours be done. It's a powerful thing to learn how to walk through this life in faith and to pray in faith that his ways are higher than our ways. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, content with insults, content with hardships, content with persecutions, and content with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul has shared after praying three times that this would be removed from him and saying, okay, then I'll boast in weakness. Then he actually goes to the place of saying, I am content in all of the things that are about to happen to me because I know, I know that when I am weak, that's when his strength speaks. That's when his strength shines. That's when his strength works through me. How does he know that? Because Jesus told him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. All right? Then I'm content with calamity. If I've prayed honestly, and then I've yielded control, then I'm content with the Lord's answer, with the Lord's response. Being both honest and yielding is a place of allowing us to truly be shaped by God in our prayer life to be molded and built up and our faith is strengthened. And honestly, I I will freely point to Jesus because he's one of those people. I will point to Jesus. John points to Jesus. He's one of those people that you can look at and you can say, imitate him because he imitates Christ. This This is a man that has loved Jesus so deeply in the midst of calamity And has come out the other end saying, not my will, but yours be done. And we can see that and grow in our character to become people that pray with faith and live by faith. This is what it looks like for us to walk through life in unanswered prayer. We start to trust God, start to say the things that are truly on our hearts. We start to believe God and what is absolutely true about him regardless of our experience. And we live differently. We bring people into the mix with us and we are diligent in prayer. We do these things because God has invited us into this place of saying, walk with me through all the things that life is going to throw at you. Be a person of prayer. And that is the space that he uses to mold and shape us to grow in maturity. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for bringing us to this place. Lord, thank you for the gift of prayer. I want to pray specifically over those in the room right now that maybe their experience with prayer has lessened their faith in being a person of prayer. They brought something to you, it didn't happen, and now they struggle to come back to you in prayer. Lord, I pray that we would be people that come back to you and come back to you and come back to you. That we understand that 
you are there, that you love us, that you're using these things, that you're taking the brokenness of this world and you're using it to bring about our good and that you have the ability to change things and we can depend on you. Lord, would you teach us even to walk through the pain of unanswered prayer back to your feet again and again and again because you are good. We love you, Lord. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.